Hello, everybody. Welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. I'm here, actually, on location where I've moved uh, north of the border, one might say, to the what is, I understand, usually rainy city of Vancouver to welcome someone who I've, had, I've admired for an incredibly long period of time, uh, Mr. Andy Blackmore from Andy Blackmore Designs. Andy, it's lovely to have you join on the podcast, firstly for making so much time uh, battling traffic and just really getting stuck in and being a, a real trooper for the show. Ah, that's no problem. It's, no, it's, it's a pleasure. And it it's is. it's also nice to hear that you've actually listened to an episode or two. Oh, yeah. I've listened to quite a few. All the artists and a few of the other people like, you know, Bissy and Hiddy and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, and I'm good. So, as you know, then, it, my podcasts very rarely differ in regards to how they go about things. So, let's dig into it and see where, how did you finally sort of get into this passion of what everything about automotive that you enjoy and you like? How did it all start? Uh, I suppose it was about three or four. <laughs> and uh, I used to have a photo of Christmas Day and I had a car, like a matchbox, because I'm from Britain. Of course. Uh, matchbox uh, car garage and loads of cars on my which, bed. Which garage was it? Was it the one with uh, the drop down like three debt levels? Uh, it was three levels, but I think, it, yes, it had three levels, and then it had a little rat, like a Ram thing that you which was up. on string that yep. would break every 20 seconds. Yep. And it was made out of really cheap MDF type. You mean the finest rod. materials oh, that was available at that British time. Product. Yeah, of course. Yes. Um, and then in the background on my wall was all posters of an eclectic range of cars, from uh -huh. Lamborghini Muras to Austin Allegros to a Datsun 120Y. And, um, so how did those how did those pictures get selected? Were they selected for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so my dad was quite into cars, but he was more into um, planes, and uh, he worked on. Uh, he was an engineer, okay. uh, design engineer, did stuff with Concorde and mm -hmm. various helicopters for Westland and stuff like that. So he was quite into cars, so he must have picked them up and got that going. And, and as signed. I got older. And Obviously. so, where were you growing up at this time? I was in Bristol. So, okay. Bristol is two hours west of London in mm -hmm. the UK, near the Welsh border. Um, pretty cool city. Um, quite cultural, quite a lot of things happening. It's one of the things I do miss of the UK. Yep. Um, but, yeah. So, it was a good city to sort of grow up and learn. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I almost, there was a time where I almost went to move to Bristol. Almost. When my family were looking to move there back in the day. Yeah. I was quite lucky because I, I went to uh, college in the late 80s. Yep. And prior to that, I didn't realize how important at the time, but I'd see th people like the Wild Bunch, which turned into Massive Attack mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And obviously, there's Port's Head and stuff like that. So, it was a good, there's a good sort of club music vibe there anyway. And I was so into music and still am, but so into 80s music then. It was perfect. Yeah. And it's a very artistic city, one might very, say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. you can certainly understand this. So, so obviously, so you're growing up, you've got your matchbox, you've got your posters mm -hmm. on the walls, and so how did it then go on towards, where did it sort of push through from there? Um, I'm not quite sure how I got into drawing. Yeah. Um, maybe my dad used to uh, do some freelance sort of uh, roof extensions and garages for, like, you know, for neighbors and stuff. Mm -hmm. So he had a drawing board, so I probably got the inspiration from that. And I just started drawing cars, and then at some point I entered a competition in a local newspaper, and it really, really just a colouring competition. Okay. And I won that, and that was about ten or eleven. Okay. Did you and get it, a big like trophy that you got for it? <laughs> I can't remember. All I can remember is that the car w had purples and greens and yellow, so it was pretty offensive. 
<laughs> Look, it's may, looking back, it could be just ahead of the time, maybe. One maybe, maybe. Maybe ahead of the time. <laughs> um, and then... Um, and then I entered a couple of other competitions as I got into my teens and I was doing drawing and illustration all the time at school and yep. just sort of developed from there really. Okay. You know. And so then how did you figure out that you wanted to go from what you were doing like in class at school? How did it go from like moving towards a studying direction of that? What was it that, how did that go about? So where did you figure out that was the way you wanted to go? Uh, I think one of the early things is, I, I, and even to this day, I really can't draw the human form. I okay. can't draw animals, but I can draw, you know, I can do architecture, I can do basically solid form. Mm -hmm. And that's always been, um, let's say, a limitation that I've had. But, you know, it's enabled me to concentrate in that area. Okay. Um, so I think even when I was like 11 and 12, I was pretty set on going into car design or product design. Yep. So I sent off about 100 letters to all the different car design studios. There was a car magazine that had an article about various studios, and it had all the heads of... So it was like, right. Which was super handy, obviously, because it was back before the days, not that we we're aging ourselves, but there wasn't really too much of the internet around at that time. You'd uh, just like Google not. how to become a, fa a car designer. Exactly, yeah. So um, I read about 100 letters and I got two replies. But Who were the two replies from? Um, two replies. One was a guy who used to work for Citroen and he set up MGA developments that did a lot of stuff forever in MG. And I can't remember his name. Mm -hmm. um, and the other guy was a designer that worked for IAD that did a lot of stuff for Subaru, Kia, and actually a Yamaha supercar that I was involved with about, I suppose, 10 years on, um, called Eddie Papal. And okay. they just gave me some guidance and mm -hmm. gave me some direction. And that just helped, you know. So when I get emails now from kids or teenagers, it's something like I will might take a while, but I will find time and always reply to them because without that sort of stuff, I might not be so fortunate. I might yeah. not be where I am now. So um, that sort of pushed me in the direction. And then I uh, did my O-levels and A-levels in the UK, which is sort of your exams for 16, 18-year-olds and stuff. I know. I did poorly on them. Exactly. I, yeah, same here. My O-levels are dreadful. Um, but I retook a couple and built them up. And then I did... Um, it's not a degree, it's called a BTEC HND in the UK, but it's below a degree on graphic design. Mm -hmm. And I had a really helpful tutor, uh, and he managed, he knew what I wanted to do. Yep. So he managed to cha um, basically change every single project into some sort of vehicle thing. So okay. if you had to do corporate identity uh, for a brand, then I did it for the Automobile Association. Okay. Which is basically car recovery in the UK. Yeah. Um, and hey, then hey. we, yeah, and then we had to do something else, uh, some tourist thing, because I went to college in a seaside town near Bristol called Western Supermare. So we had to do it for the tourist board. So we basically uh, came up with the idea of starting the trams back up and then do that. So every project was was like that, like automotive based. So that was a two-year project, a two-year uh, HND, and then that enabled me to then apply to a vehicle design course in Coventry, which was always oversubscribed. But because I'd had that um, extra bit of graphic design work and stuff like that, I was able to get a place. And then I did a four-year course in Coventry on vehicle design. Now, one, it's it's obviously great that you're able to have a, um, a, core, a place set aside for you in the course, which is super handy for the background. But yeah. my wife will get really mad at me if I don't revisit the fact that you went to university in Western Supermare and being it's a beachside town, yep. she always is incredibly 
surprised by how far the water is generally away from the coast oh, at a yeah. British beach when she doesn't realize that you get to the beach and then you have to like hike for like four miles. At least. At least before you get to the water. Yeah. So you kind of separate because like mobile phone reception like goes dead. You're out of like GPS <laughs> spots. It's so far away. And then when you do get to the water, it's only like for the next like six miles, it's like ankle deep. Exactly. And at the that, very most. At the very most. Yeah. I, like we, it was actually college, not uni at Western. And we were, uh, uh, an old, the art department was at an old building on the cliffs. So you'd look over and like when it was windy, which was most days. Of course. It's, it's, it's England. Basically yeah. in the, it's the River Severn. It's yep. the uh, Severn Estuary. Like the whole, sort of the whole building would move. But you wouldn't see the sea for days. You literally would not see for the the sea, and it would either be because it's so as misty and as foggy as it is in Vancouver now, yep. or it was because the water was probably closer to the Welsh border than Western Supermare. I know it's just amazing. The coast always amazes my wife. She's like, she still is very incredibly impressed by it. And when she does see the water, she has to take a picture. She's like, it's so close today, <laughs> I could almost touch it, almost. Well, I'm pretty sure Western, and I'm, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Western has the greatest variance on tides because of the seven estuary. Okay. Uh, of anywhere in the UK. Yep. Well, certainly in England, anyway. Yep. Might be different, Scotland or whatever. Yeah. Oh, it's a funny place. But, so anyway, so getting back to Coventry. Mm. So, four-year course yep. at Coventry there? Yep. And then, so obviously you moved to the Midlands? Yeah. And so Coventry moved. is, for those unfamiliar with UK geography and car uh, building in the UK, Coventry is very popular destination for some of the manufacturers at that time. At that time, yeah. Birmingham and Coventry, which are both big cities. Birmingham is very big. Um, they were basically the, the the industrial hubs of middle England as such. And the car industry and tyres and a lot of components like Lucas and stuff, like everybody worked in the car industry in the 70s. Mm -hmm. By the time I got there in the 90s, it was starting to close down. But you still had Peugeot there, Rover, uh, Jaguar, um, and you had all the design companies there. There were like six or seven design companies. The The university course had been going for like 15 years and mm -hmm. that was being sponsored and projects were being sponsored by those local companies. Um, even like London taxis. So London taxis back in the day before it got bought by car bodies and everybody else. Yep. You know, they used to take a, a design on placement in the third year and stuff. So everybody went off to placement in the third year. Um, so it was a it was a rich hub for the car industry. Um, I was there just before sort of the university fully embraced CAD and computers and aliens. Okay. So I was literally the last year where that really wasn't part of the curriculum. So it was a bit tougher once we graduated, but luckily I got a placement at Yamaha. So uh, I was quite fortunate, and that sort of directed me away from mass production, yep. which most people went into, and into low-volume stuff, which, you know, I've always been into motor racing, so it was, it was the perfect setup, really. And then, so what was the first things that you were working on when you went across to Yamaha then, post uh Coventry, uh, so, design school. Yeah, okay. so Yamaha was a 20-week placement. It was supposed to be a year placement, and unfortunately, the project got cancelled. So it was a single-seater, well, actually, it was a tandem supercar mm -hmm. that was styled in Japan and also IAD, which I'd mentioned earlier, and it r used a detuned Formula 3000 Yamaha engine, three okay. and a half litre, uh, full carbon fibre tub. This is like 92, so this is just as the McLaren F1's been announced. Yep. Um, they built three prototypes and basically it was going into production. So I was involved 
in helped and productionize it. So learning about safety things. So um, the car had a uh, very organic form, very soft form, and it had a very unusual like wing uh, between the headlamps. Yep. And then there was a huge space underneath, which the airflow. Well, that wasn't legal because a child's head could easily get in it. No. So, so there was all legal these, these exactly. rules. These, the why do you need these rules? So I was involved in doing some stuff like that and changing power gaps and stuff. It was it was a really exciting project because. So is that telling me you just spend a lot of time with like a baby's head and like this splitter, like going into it and saying <laughs> where does it stop and where can we not hit it? No, I just oh, had a, I just a had a list of things I had to change. And okay. I, you know, and there was other things. I did a lot of technical drawings, so exploded views of suspension and stuff like that. Yeah. So it was awesome, and it was you know it was fantastic, and I got to go around Silverstone in the back of it and it was a like I say it was a tandem two seater um the back seat at that point was just a foam pad okay. on a carbon tub yep so, so perfect lots of eight. stability yeah perfect like yeah. you got cushioned everywhere you're <laughs> locked strictly in place no sort movement of. whatsoever <laughs> yeah and the person did not give it anything they were just like toodling around oh, at like quaint speed definitely but no, that was amazing. So uh, that, that was a real highlight back in the day. This is like 1993. Okay. So a long time ago. So it was supposed to be a year placement. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, Japan had a financial crisis. Yamaha got scared because also it was a big investment for them because also it was a car, you know? Yep. Um, so they uh, basically mothballed the project and then later cancelled it. So I then went back to uni and you had to do something like a minimum of 16 weeks to graduate. Or, okay. And luckily I'd done 20. So okay. I was okay. So I used the rest of that time to do some freelance projects and build that up and also work on my final year project, which was actually a road legal race car. Okay. Um, so like for the old BPR championship back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, using a lot of Formula 3000 parts and stuff that and with that the bpr that was the one that before that came into the world gt challenge kind of thing that was like the well it went the bpr that was the european gt yeah it was sort of fia gt championship after that so bpr started off and it was uh stefan retail and a couple others and um porsche 911 gt2s ferrari yes. f40s and then yeah. in 95 mclaren f1 uh and, and they had the panels and they had the mustang yeah. gts yeah yeah. So uh, and the, then the Porsche GT ones came into it and, and basically destroyed the championship with yeah. Mercedes. Yeah, and killed it. Yeah, but uh, it was it, it was, was a very good racing. I mean, oh, I yeah. was lucky enough to go see some of the events in '94 and '95. So my father, we went to Donington and Silverstone for a couple of the events. Yeah. So it was very very enjoyable racing series. Also, I think they uh, ran a, a Jaguar XJ220. I think. Yeah, yeah, 220C. Well. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a really good mm. uh, taking the supercars of the time and seeing them compete on track. And then also, I mean, I distinctly remember going to see at Silverstone, seeing Ron Dennis there. He had his McLaren there, and then he had yep. the teams with all of them. So it was all like it was an incredible time to be able to watch those cars. Looking back at I it, I think now. what was really cool about it back in the day, you didn't you didn't have all the technology and BOP that you do now. Mm-hmm. But also, this sort of championship evolved very quickly. Yep. Um, to the surprise of the manufacturers. So even Ferrari, you know, their 40 really wasn't suited for a racetrack. So these cars were supercars and they were skittish. They were on a knife edge. Yeah. So they're really entertaining to watch. Yeah. Whereas you tried to do it now, and some people have been trying to get sort of various supercar and now I suppose hypercar series up. The the concern is obviously the expense, but also, well, are these cars going to handle on the track? Yeah, but uh, back back in the day, yeah, it was awesome. I I was lucky to be involved because 
I ended up at McLaren and did quite a few liveries uh, for that and ended up going to a few races and stuff. So, yeah, it was a very rich era. So, yeah, I also like that you had also you had the access as well back then, so it was totally. a little bit easier to get there. Yeah. So, totally. and it was, uh, yeah, and I always remember that Silverstone could guarantee it was always going to rain at Silverstone. And be windy yeah. and cold. Yeah, and yeah. then some of the heaviest rainfall I think I've ever experienced at a racetrack was at Silverstone. Yes. Where Have I'm you ever been to uh, Snetterton? No. So Snetterton's a little circuit in Norfolk, mm-hmm. and it's always about 15 degrees colder than anywhere else in the UK. doesn't matter where. It's always grey and gloomy. Well, I think you just, <laughs> uh, it also just seems like Croft as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, well, Croft yeah. is always bitterly cold. <laughs> yeah. Bitterly, bitterly cold. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I've only done Croft once, and that was enough. Yeah, I went there Sorry, when, the, when the RAC came through. And I think that we, when we set off, it was like, obviously, we're talking in Celsius now, so all the Americans are going to not understand this. But it was like, it was just freezing, leaving yeah. in North Yorkshire. And then we got to the racetrack, and it was minus 16. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, it was so cold. Yeah. So, But we thought, you know, we'll get there before first light, see them all come through. Yeah. I was like, oh, it was so cold. Yeah, I used to do that at Longley every year. Yeah. So I, I have a, uh, uh, an old story. So I always used to go with my dad to the IOC rally. And um, I obviously used to have to take some time off school. Yep. So my uh, parents came up with the idea that my nan had died. And then the following year, my nan was ill. And then the following year, my nan was died. And then the teacher, I think the headmistress was like, how many nans do you have yeah. exactly? How many is that? <laughs> so Three? Yeah. Four? So we were rumbled. It transpired about two or three years later and the headmistress her husband was actually a rally driver and he was taking the same time off the same days off to follow the rally. Yeah. So she knew exactly what was going on. And she's like, in that end, he likes to draw the cars. Yes. She's put two and two. He's got the picture of the Austin Allegro as well as favorite. <laughs> so that's, it must be that. Yeah. So then, so how did you go then from, so where did you go end up after finishing a uh, course? How did you end up getting across into McLaren then? Um, so the, one of the chief designers and engineers at Yamaha was a guy called John Baldwin, and he was a pure race engineer that had worked for McLaren, did McLaren IndyCar program back in the 70s. Yep. Uh, done a lot of stuff with March and um, uh, Haas, the original Haas, mm-hmm. uh, in F1 and stuff. And um, he was working for Yamaha, and he was also working for a race team that back in the day was called 3001, and before that was the Onyx Formula 1 team. Okay. So he was doing that on weekends, race engineering. And they had a design company they just set up, and they were doing a lot of stuff for McLaren. Okay. And also the Sultan of Brunei. Yep. So, um, uh, cutting a long story short, they sponsored my final year project. Uh, They helped prepare my final year project, because you have to make a scale model. And Mm -hmm. so I got it all sprayed and got it all finished nicely, and they helped massively. Um, And then I got a job there. Okay. So I did that, and... Ended up at McLaren a few times and then got called into Ron's office one day. <laughs> I can imagine that being called into Ron Dennis's office is both a good and a bad thing, I guess, depending on what happened the day before of sorts. Yeah, I'd, I'd met him a few times. <clears throat> a lot of people have a bit of a fear of him. Um, and that's just the way he works. Or worked. Um, so he alluded to the, the concept that I could work there. Yep. And I went away, and then I thought about it, and then I sent him a letter just before Christmas. And then he sent me a letter back, registered, saying, don't do anything until I'm back from the holidays. Okay. <laughs> so that's how I ended up at McLaren. But I did about seven or eight months at 
2001 Grand Prix design, and mm-hmm. I actually ended up doing the uh, the livery for the Golf McLaren and the West McLaren there. Okay. Uh, and a few other things, and some stuff for the Salton Brunei and stuff, because there was loads of money around from um, from that sort of arena of projects. Um, yeah, I can imagine the Salton of Brunei might have yeah. a fair few bob. At that the, point, In the yes. couch at that time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because so yeah, didn't you have a collection you had? Like, it still has, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but obviously they're just in a garage locked away somewhere. Yeah, it's no an air-conditioned garage, but it's it's not really looked after now, and there's a falling out with the family, so one of the princes basically got sort of disowned, and, it all, and then at the same time, uh, money not exactly dried up, but they were spending it quicker than it was coming in. Yeah. So it all went a bit wrong. So there's there's some very special one-off cars that like people haven't seen, but also some concept cars that you will have seen at motor shows that they will have bought they just four or five of them, and they're just rotting away. So yeah. there's there's a few cars that have got out and literally been smuggled out, a couple of F1s, a couple mm-hmm. of Bugattis, but there's a lot of stuff there that's just completely rotten. Yeah, it's very un- it's always yeah. unusual when you think about it. You remember the time, it was like, all the sudden, but then it's like, oh, they're all like, oh yeah, what's happening to them now? Yeah. But, I mean, the West car that you did is a very beautiful car. Yeah, that was a... that that was. Um, and the Golf one as well, beautiful, yeah. beautiful deliveries. Yeah, so I did the Golf one first. So the Golf one's not exactly rocket science, mm-hmm. um, and they'd actually run a Porsche the year before in that color. Yep. But it was really getting the livery to work with the lines of the car, which with the F1, there's you know, three or four lines that are sort of like third-degree angle, which was quite unusual back yep. in the day. And now you have a lot of logos that have angled on race cars, but back in those days, you didn't. So um, it was a tricky one to do, but, you know... I had a base there. Then the West one, we tried quite a few different ideas on that. So uh, one thing that McLaren wanted to do was any livery that came through McLaren, Mm -hmm. because they offered the services to potential customers, they wanted to uh, create a consistent look. So the cars would look good, hopefully, individually, but they also look good as a collective. So if you look at a lot of the cars in the first year, I ended up doing quite a few. Um, they often use a similar color break. Okay. And that was deliberate. That was on purpose. Okay. So, of course, Ron and Co. didn't tell the teams that. So, when the first car got unveiled, it was all cool. When the second car got unveiled, then Ray Belm was, like, on the phone going, uh, that looks very much like the golf cart. And then yeah. the third car got launched, and then Dave Price was on the phone. You know, and you ended up with... But it worked very well, because... Um, it's something I strive to do with uh, multi-car teams is to create an identity for the the team yep. or the manufacturer. Motor racing is very unique in a sport yep. in that the team doesn't often have an identity. Yep. It's, a, it's the sponsor. So yep. I try and... And that's something I learned back in... When was that? 95. Okay. So that's something I push a lot. So, yep. uh, But anyway, I digress. <laughs> And so, because you were at McLaren, you said, was it on and off then, or was it just like projects at the time, or were no, you full-time? I, yeah, full-time, beginning in 95, yep. and then I lasted until the end of 99. Okay. So, yeah. Which is a good run. It's a good run, but it's very tiring. I can, um, no way. Very, you don't tell me you worked awfully long hours for oh, Ron Dennis. It, it, was, it was nuts. Ron was very good. Um, Ron had a good, has a good eye for design, mm-hmm. and yeah, we... I think because I'd worked with him on various projects before I was an employee, I didn't have the fear that some people have. But no matter what you read about Ron in the press and stuff, he is so loyal to his employees. Yep. And he is like, you know, there's people who like, yeah, guy had a heart attack. 
he was sent over to the top surgeon in Switzerland, convalesced, all this sort of thing. Another guy lo uh, lost his wife. They sorted everything out. They just basically get a year off. Yeah. You know, he looks after his employees massively. He's and and then when you were doing the the work, for example, we just talk about the F1 for a sec. Did you have anything to do with any of the designers with the car as well? Then did you or when you'd come up with a design, would you ever talk to Gordon Murray and Peter Stevens around how that would get together or? Uh, Peter had moved on at that I point. I was going to say, hadn't he moved? Yeah. Like, so he went to Subaru, was it? After um, yeah, well, he was he was doing more free, general freelance, but he was doing okay. a lot of stuff for uh, Subaru ProDrive and I think TWI yeah. at that point and stuff. Um, I don't think he, I don't think he was at MG River at that point, but he was basically more freelancing. Yeah, at the time. Because by the time I arrived, the first production was cars sold, had been right? delivered. Yeah. Yep. So uh, Gordon and his uh, right-hand man, Barry Lett, who's an amazing engineer and designer who doesn't get the credit that he should, um, they were working on the GTR. So I didn't have anything really to do with the styling of the GTR. I okay. did do some concepts for some variants, which mm -hmm. never saw the light of day, although my front-end concept on one of the car one of the proposals basically was the front end of the long tail mclaren in the end okay i hasten to add not the back yeah <laughs> um so now most of my stuff was speculative stuff for future projects yep. in styling or liveries mm -hmm. mostly for the f1 gtr i did a bit of stuff on formula one grand prix cars but not too much and then the rest i then got pushed into race team support okay so that sounds negative i i I jumped at the chance to go to race, race team support. And then I did things like motorhomes, the race transporters, styled. Yes, I was going to ask, can Even, you explain a little bit more about race team support, what that entails? So race team support um, was a team of a couple of, well, me and a couple of engineers and a fabricator mainly. And we'd basically build and design anything that was required to support the team at the track. Okay. So that could be anything from a lighting module that goes into the roof of the garage, mm -hmm. no expense spared. Um, pit crew helmets, which I did a few different designs over the four or five years that were loosely based off ski helmets, but in carbon fiber. Yep. Again, no expense spared. It doesn't seem like exactly. it at all. Right down to fuel trolleys, even like front wing covers. Um, and and so people wonder about these, these Formula One budgets and where all the money goes. And yeah. It's like, this is where it goes, right? Back the in the day, the yeah, they are. That doesn't happen now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was like I remember um, being asked about a project after it had been made uh, by the pushing department, and they explained how much it was, and I was about three hundred thousand pounds off. <laughs> but nobody, nobody had ever asked me or queried or said, "Oh, you need to justify that cost." It was like whatever was required. And Just back, get it done. Yeah. And back in the day, you had the race team, which go into 16 races, mm -hmm. but you also had the test team. And basically, when the race team went racing, the test team were already at a circuit, normally Barcelona. Yep. So there was a constant flow of cars coming back and forth, and you'd get a project. So you'd come in on a Monday after the race, mm -hmm. and the um, one of the designers, Noel Oatley, would... He would have put a literally a thirty-page document on everybody's desk, and it would have all your initials, and that would be your immediate task for the next two weeks for the next Grand Prix. Wow! And they were tasks that would normally take two, three, four months. Yep. And because they had to be on the truck like the Monday before the Grand Prix, That's you basically had seven days. Yeah. And it was nuts. And w can you explain like what like one of those tasks would look like for you? What would it be? It literally would be um, maybe between um, between a race. It would be like new front wing covers, which would have to have like 
five, ten, fifteen sets to fit new front wings, <laughs> so that they could get covered up the minute the cars got in the garage, so that no Ferrari see. and others couldn't see. Last year, I was on the race team support, the which I think was the year Mika won. Um, I think there was twenty-five different types of front wing. <laughs> so you know and and so we had about six or seven different front wing covers yep. and they were carbon we did some vac form stuff but they were carbon they had to be stickered up because yep. people like west and bridgestone back in the day weren't happy that their logos were getting covered up by so what we you to... put a cover on sure exactly. that makes sense so i'm yeah. giving you like a fair bit of a fair bit of change yeah can you show it off a little bit please yeah. so originally it was just like a canvas material yeah but no that was too untidy for the mclaren way so of we course. ended up doing a carbon fiber cover that just clipped on and you know of course the problem is then people don't notice it so at one test they went to drive off with the wing <laughs> with the stand. cover on <laughs> <laughs> so then okay so you've gone with the race team and so where did that lead you then because this is 99 yeah i left at the end of 99 99 i was burnt out okay um because as you say obviously it's a hectic lifestyle yeah it's and lots of uh lots of I mean, it's obviously there's lots of reward in it, mm. but oh, yeah. it's very intense and there's lots on the go. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely uh, lots of reward. You know, paid for my deposit on uh, my, the bonus for winning the World Championship, paid for a deposit on my first house. So there there's go. huge, huge bonuses. Yeah. But um, I was probably a bit naive and not experienced enough to handle it, but I, I was just burnt out. And I didn't go to a lot of the races or anything. Like, you know, I don't know how the race team did it and even do it now and a lot of the mechanics they will only do five six years on race team and they are done i mean i always my dream was always i just wanted to be the guy that had just come off at the time thanks to uh jeff graman's Pose grand prix 93 yeah. where i come on i just want to be the guy with the sponge yeah <laughs> at the pit stop and that was it that's all yeah. i wanted to do i could handle that that's yeah. the extent of my where i wanted to be in a formula one team that's it that's what i want to do come in yeah out that's it but it could only be for one driver. I couldn't do it for two. I mean, that's oh, like... That's too much that's pressure. That's too much. Too much too pressure. Much. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, like, I think back in, back in those days, there was like 23, 25 people on a pit stop. Yeah. Even down to the point of one person just steady in the car yep. by the camera mount to make, you know, on the, on the jack. So, um, yeah, it was a huge operation back then. So um, you yeah. leave in 99 and where do you yeah. go from there? So I was mulling over what to do. I had an offer from Toyota F1 team, but they weren't up and running yet. So okay. I had to find a stopgap um, if I was going to leave. Mm -hmm. And then one of the fabricators came around one day and um, he said, you don't know anybody who wants to model Formula One cars for a video game, do you? And I went, no. And he said, because his wife was head of HR for Electronic Arts. Okay. And I didn't even think anything more. And I just modeled it over for a couple of hours and then I thought, hmm, that could be interesting as a stopgap. Yep. So long and short of it, had an interview, got the job. And obviously they were doing an F1 game at the time. And I was fortunate in that I had quite a lot of uh, knowledge and information, particularly on pit stops, which back in the day they were starting to do animations of pit stops. Yep. Um, so I was a valuable resource in terms of the knowledge thing, as well as deliveries and the modeling and stuff of course so that small stop gap lasted 12 years okay as small stop gaps do yeah 12 years uh four offices and two continents and i think i think we worked out 28 desk moves and uh, it got me to canada of well, there you go so that's that's a lot of desks yeah hopefully yeah. got some nice desks in those 28 uh some <laughs> 
So would that the first game you would have worked on as a Formula One game? Would that would have probably been EA two thousand F one two thousand one kind of right? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think the first one was called two thousand Championship Season. Okay, and that was a bit of a rush. Yep, um, like every video game is. Yeah, yeah, and then we did two or three more, and then um, the the financial aspects weren't working for EA because of the way Bernie does things. Yep. Um, so. Uh, I then got involved in a rally game and then Need for Speed, which was based here in Canada, literally about 20 yards from here for, okay. for many years, Yep. Um, <clears throat> called. And I went over with a few other modelers and designers back in 03, 04 yeah, for a couple the, of weeks. And one of the uh, noted no-breaking alums, Rod Chong. Yes, he ended a, lot, a bit later, yeah. Yeah, ended up there. So I... Um, I came out here for a couple of weeks, loved it, went back. Um, about a year later, I decided to leave EA and set myself up full time. Yep. And within a week, EA Canada had contacted me saying, oh, can you work for us for a while? Yep. And basically managed to, to get an agreement where it was continued service, which is good for sabbaticals and of stuff. Of course, yeah. Um, and I basically went back to EA Canada full time. So for about 18 months, I sort of commuted. So I'd work at home for four or five weeks, and then yep. I'd come out here for two weeks. Oh, okay. Did that for about 18 months, got to the point where, okay, this is like McLaren again. Yeah, it's a lot of, I'm I mean, gonna it's, die. Plus it's, it's a bit of a commute, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And it would take you a few days to recover, as, as you know, anybody travels. Difference? Yeah. Yeah, so um, myself and my wife decided we'd, uh, and my wife would come out a couple of times to experience Vancouver, mm -hmm. you know, because... I'd been here a fair bit, and she'd only been here for like a weekend or a week here. So um, we thought we'd give it a go and do a year or two years. Yep. There's a pattern here in my life, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought we'd do a stop gap a year, two years. That's it. Two years deaf, then we're yep. out, right? And, and then we're out, and then we'll go back to the UK and then pick up where we left off and stuff. So cutting that story short, we put our house on the market about three months after we arrived here full time yep. and started the PR process. And that was in 2005? six and um that was that and i stayed at ea till 2012 ea was really good they allowed me to do freelance liveries okay um which benefited them because we managed to get quite a few of my cars but also other cars into games okay which is obviously all, very handy exactly without all the hassle of like um um paying you know payments and stuff and, and i'm guessing contracts. lawyering fees and all sorts of yeah, things like that which yeah, people don't really realize oh yeah, licensing. licensing is a huge thing like when i was on need for speed there was three people in the licensing department just for need for speed yeah so um yeah so it benefited them but it also benefited me yeah so that took me to 2012 and then which were some of your favorite games that you got to work on then in the franchise that you enjoyed um Easily my favourite was Need for Speed Pro Street, which okay. was the one that Rod uh, basically came on board for. And um, a lot of the um, the creative direction, the look, the style of the game was years ahead of, you know, other mm -hmm. racing games. And yep. you see elements of it now in, you know, Shift 1 and 2 and, and even Forza Horizon and stuff. And most of that was down to Rod. Um, it was a really good, fun project to do. Uh, and I was designing quite a few of the body kits, but I was able to design the body kits like a car stylist, like a tuner, whereas okay. back in the Need for Speed days, it was all about do something loud and offensive and neons and stuff, and I was always fighting that 
And then when we came to Pro Street, it was like, right, we want some realism. And it was like, fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, I love Pro Street. And um, a lot of the liveries were created by myself and two other guys, a guy called Mike Hayes and another guy called Gabriel Frazera, who now works for Marvel mm-hmm. uh, on video games. And uh, the, those two were, you know, did some amazing work on liveries. So I can't take all the credit for Just for most of it, right. A bit of it. Yeah. Because I, I was mostly doing the body kits, actually. So, okay. Uh, but, yeah, that was good. Um, and, actually, the last project I worked on was Need for Speed the Run. Mm-hmm. And that didn't come out of a good game because of deadlines and cuts at the last minute. But in terms of the cars, the styling, the liveries, and also how the world looks, it looked phenomenal. It just yep. wasn't a very good game to play yeah. at all. Well, these things happen. Yeah. yeah. So that was basically right. I need to make a break. And so where did that lead you to at that point then? Where was it? Where did you think or where did you want to go? Because you've obviously been doing the freelance work. Yeah. Um, I decided, uh, I suppose it was about 2008, I decided, right, I want to do liveries and car stuff. Mm-hmm. Cancer sort of, make sure that's what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And also there was this thing where EA used to do sabbaticals. So uh, I think it was uh, eight years, you'd get five weeks. Okay. And at 12 years, you'd get like, 10 or 11 weeks or something mm-hmm. like that and I also built up loads of weeks in lieu for all the overtime I'd done and yeah. stuff which doesn't get paid for in video games so they pay you back by giving you an extra couple of weeks off Okay. so I had like 13 weeks off the end of two, uh, 2011 mm-hmm. begin 2012 so I finished in November and I didn't come back to the office until March Okay. and I came back to the office in March and that day everybody's heads were down and it's because there was a huge redundancy thing going so I made a few little queries and, you know, I don't know if if it was loud enough, but anyway, I was offered a redundancy package mm-hmm. and it was like, perfect. Yep. So took that and that was basically it. Now I had decided to leave at the end of that year anyway. Okay. So it worked it was out. It worked the out timing perf- was perfect. Yeah, yeah, it worked out perfectly. Um, so yeah, staying at EA that bit longer enabled me to do things like Pro Street. So, you know, it was in... It was the right decision for on every level. Mm-hmm. So okay, but, yeah. And then so you go. So that's leading to freelance then when you leave EA. Oh uh, yeah, literally the next. Yeah, I I'd, I'd actually set my company up a couple of weeks before. Yeah. So um, well, obviously yeah. with the expensive legal fees that lawyers take and everything else under the sun. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So uh, I. Unfortunately, I'd already, right? Yeah, I'd already set everything up ready for the end of the year. Yeah. So it, I just had to accelerate. But I then managed to get some work on another video game almost immediately, like literally even a week. Okay. So that, that got me up and running. Four which games game was that then? Uh, it was a game called Sim Raceway, which was a sim game based off Far Factor. Mm-hmm. And um, it was actually ahead of its time. Uh, so it was introducing eSports back in 2012 yep. and also gambling. Which eSports, are they ever going to take off? Nah. Who's going to do watch eSports? Exactly. Um, so, you know, you'd race for points and prizes and stuff, and eventually you'd be able to gamble, so you'd be able to put money on players and stuff Mm -hmm. and have championships. But it was, it probably didn't have enough funding. It needed its own, let's say, game, because it was based on our factor, uh, and it tried to grow too quick. So, um, but, you know, time has proven that the concept was spot on. Mm -hmm. the sim community didn't exactly like Sim Raceway for various reasons and stuff. Yeah. So, um, 
And I, I think did that for about a year. It's probably also one of those things as well where it's still in its infancy. At that oh, point very as much well. so. Yeah, very much so. You know, you look at what's happening now. You know, you've got every Formula One team having esports. Um, program they have people like McLaren have their own championships mm-hmm. you have the world fastest gamer which is a huge thing that's sort of building up which yep. is run by a guy called Dan Cox that used to do PlayStation's Gran Turismo Academy with yep. Nissan yep. so um, you know like world fastest gamer is is a huge thing so yeah esports is massive and it's it's getting some big figures both in terms of viewing but also in terms of money coming into the sport I mean yeah and then it'd be good to and the outside of like just the racing games and the esports side I mean if you've got Fortnite players winning millions oh, of dollars totally. I mean yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's not a bad way to do it, right? There's a guy that won. I can't remember if it was a Mercedes or McLaren um, simulator driver or esports driver, and he is now works at the factory on the Sims. Yeah. To basically get it more authentic for the likes of Lewis. Yeah. You know, so um, pretty, it's pretty incredible when you think about it. Pretty quick how how, how it's quickly quick it's, it's evolved off. and happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that is. I'm not sure it's the future of motor racing, but it's a huge part of it for sure. Yeah, definitely. So you're doing, you've worked on the the sim game, and then so is this when? When did it start? You start looking to do more liveries and your famous spotting guides. When did all that sort of um, into it on? Well, like? I started doing more liveries when I was still at EA, so mm-hmm. I was doing three or four a year. Yeah, which yeah was about as much as I could do with a full time job that course. was like quite often fifty, sixty hours a week anyway. Which in that time, which were some of the favourite ones that you really enjoyed doing and worked um, on the most? I think one of my earlier ones was probably Turner Motorsports on the Z on the Z four. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Z four. Yeah. And um I still do most of Turner stuff now. Um and they're an awesome client and we sort of going back to an earlier comment we've managed to create an identity for that brand yeah so that so even take Turner Motorsports I know what colour you're talking about yeah but the, the graphic is you know a rectangle with flashes at the end which fade out mm-hmm. and they have title sponsorship on some races from Liquid Molly so now we have a white car we have the red and blue stripes but like Turner so yeah. you you got a marriage of the two liveries so everybody knows that it's a Turner car even though it's got a huge Liquid Molly so yeah Liquid Wally benefit from it. Turn a benefit from it. Yeah. Um, I did one of the Delta Wing liveries, which were fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very challenging. And I did quite a few small teams back in the day as a baseball player, CJ Wilson. He had a race team. So yep. MX5s and then Porsche Caymans and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a few things for GMG racing in, in, uh, in California, which, is, again, is another client that mm-hmm. I still have. Um so, yeah, there were quite a few small teams, but that was probably the best way. Yeah. Uh, and then the Spark Guides. The Spark Guides started, actually, when I was in the UK. I did um, illustrations for ITV, which is the TV channel in the UK that share the British drawing cars. And I did the basically the car illustrations for the grid mm-hmm. graphics at yep. the start of the race. Or if you were English, I would have just said Channel 3. Yeah, Channel 3. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or HTV for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, that's how that started, and then Sayat Sport contacted me because they had a one-make series, and they wanted, like, a guide, and it uh-huh. just evolved from there. And then I started doing Le Mans and Formula One, and unpaid Formula One. Uh, and then when I came to North America, I did IMSA, or the ALMS back in those days. Yep. And then within the year, uh, a good friend of mine, John Heindhoff, had contact connected me with IMSA and then it became an official guide which is still to this day which is pretty cool 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, for a long time, it wasn't a viable thing, but it was good for networking. Yeah. But now it's... I hate to think how many hours I put into it. So when if, if I actually thought and thinking about last this past Christmas, maybe it's not that viable. But it is enjoyable, <laughs> and it has definitely opened doors. And I know pretty much every PR person and most of the team managers in IMSA, which is for my line of work, is it's gold. pretty handy. Let's put it that oh, way. Oh yeah, and I've definitely got a lot of work from it. So yeah. And so then, what's the been? I mean, it's obviously the the spotters guide is so. I mean, especially when you talk about like IMSA nowadays, it's like a given that, that you're going to do it at such a high quality and it looks so good. Thanks. And you always turn it out year on year and it looks excellent. Yeah. But I mean, so where does this push you? What's the, where are you looking to go next and what's, what do you want to do, I should say? Um, spot guide wise, I'm pretty happy with where it's at. I, I wanted to expand it for a while, but I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I mean, um, look, you, it sounds like it's it's at least two and a half hours of your time, like total, right? <laughs> and that's off, it, done. Two and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> the IMSA guide is big because um, there's two championships at the start of the season. Mm -hmm. So this year there was about 90 cars, but there must have been about 10 of those cars that I ended up redoing twice because livery drivers change. I start that at the beginning of December. I have all the base cars drawn up. Yep. So all the, you know, the BMWs and the Ferraris, all the basic line drawings drawn up. And then, thankfully, quite a few of those cars are my liveries. So That makes it a little easier. A little easier. Copy-paste, right? Yeah. Of sorts, to some so extent. So I think at Daytona, across the two series, I had 14 or 15 mm -hmm. cars. Yep. Cars, not liveries, because yep. some were multi-teams. But, hey, we'll ignore that. Um and then I had to draw the rest of them up. Now, over the years, the teams have got to know me. No, I'm not going to break an embargo. No, I'm not going to spill the beans to anyone. So in IMSA, I had every team bar one send me stuff, give me stuff, give me artwork. And then I basically collate it together, redraw it so it's all the same style. Yep. And go from there. But it's still a lot of work. You know, I'm, I was flat out from the end of November... Well, literally until Rolex weekend. Yeah. Uh, on liveries and... Spot guides, and um, so much so that I actually injured myself this year. So, you did, yeah. So I don't know if you can tell because I am a bit better now. But I've I've messed up my shoulder. I've got a trap nerve. Oh my lord! One of my vertebrae is slightly out. So who would have thought that's the that would happen if you're drawing yeah. or creating in, in art? Well, it's because you're you're sort of you're haunched, uh, yeah over a desk. Mm. I like I have a big tablet which is like a 23-inch tablet on an yep. easel. Yep. But still, you know, and it's it's not something that's happened in two months. Yeah. It's happened over the years and even back in video games, you know. But I think um, I think I just must have just done too much. I'm just year. glad you didn't lop an ear off or yeah. do anything like that to get too extreme <laughs> well, for your art. I could have done last weekend because uh, <laughs> I was in quite a lot of pain. But I'm, you know, I'm chiropractor and massage all this week and, and I'm starting to get there. But yeah, it, that has really made me, like my wife has always been like, you need to take breaks, you need to take breaks, you need, you know, and uh, yeah, I haven't listened to her enough. And, and uh, you're like, yeah, yeah, of course, I, I will, I'll take breaks. Yeah. I never do. And then, but it, you then, know, then did she give you a good I told you so at the end of it? May, maybe. <laughs> she's, but she was right. Um, but um, I think, I think a lot of it is because I really enjoy it. I love it. Mm -hmm. Like I might end up, particularly over this Christmas New Year period, I might be working at three o'clock in the morning. 
but I still enjoy it. Yep. Like, I get frustrated, as anybody does in any job. You mm -hmm. know, you can speak to somebody who's got the best job in the world and they have bad days and yep. good days, you know? It's all relative. Um, but I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I can work from home. I do what I love. Um, I'm actually inspiring my daughter because she's rapidly becoming an artist because oh, she's seeing what then. I'm doing. Yep. And you um, obviously you inspire people who write write to as you mentioned before yeah. and ask you with questions and whatnot. Yeah, so I'm 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 so lucky, so fortunate, and and so I'm certainly not grumbling, certainly not complaining. I might be complaining because I'm aching be back. at the moment. Yeah, but... and, and having to deal with traffic, maybe going home and whatnot. Oh, it'll be okay. But yeah. so aside, uh, so were you working on it? What are you going to be working on for the remainder of 2020? Then I mean, what's that looking like? Um. There's still the SRO, which is another championship in North America, which used to be called the Blanc Pan uh, GT, series. GT Series. And before that, Pretty World Challenge. Mm -hmm. This year's just going to be, I think, the SRO GT Challenge by AWS or something. Yeah. Um, that's still got to start up. Uh, so I'm actually doing some liveries now. So I've got to finish like two or three off this next couple of days. Yep. So I do a I'm lot of work. I'm glad that I'm not taking you away from all this important work then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah. I am at least making you not hunch over as exactly, much. So that's what yeah. I feel like I'm yeah. helping you. Basically, I'm I'm helping. Your wife's told me to do this, so you can get to done. You got it. Yeah. Um. So I'm doing stuff for CrowdStrike, and and they got quite a few cars and a few other teams. And then sometimes I get the odd Formula Drift stuff. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get some vehicle styling stuff, which I've pulled back on a bit because I'm trying to. I'm trying to try and reduce some of my hours and some of my stuff. So of I'm course. being a bit more selective now. Um, and then there'll be, hopefully, there'll be stuff at Le Mans. Like I was involved in three liveries at Le Mans last year. One of them was mine. The other two I helped other designers. Mm -hmm. um, and then literally the week after Le Mans, it's weird. It's like tumbleweed. Nothing. Nothing. Which is perfect because it means I get a summer. Now, yeah. in video games, you don't get summers because everybody's getting ready for November, December releases. Yeah, with the Christmas rush, I'm yeah. guessing, right? So, and Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's huge in computer sales in North America. Yeah, I guess with the um, Black Friday. Yeah, so um, I didn't see summer for 12 years, really. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I love the fact that, aside from last year, where I had a project on, I normally have quite a quiet July, August, September into October. And then it starts to pick up again. Yeah, literally after the last IMSA race, everybody starts panicking and it's like, oh no, we've got to get, and you know, ready you speak to them two weeks before and nobody's ready to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and then SEMA's the big thing and so you get the race and st people start panicking in October and then you get the aftermarket industry in November. Yeah, so, so. at this past SEMA, you were involved mm. with a livery, or more than one, I think. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm trying to think. <laughs> so, yeah, I was involved in uh, a, a really cool project, uh, Bissimoto, uh, which was a Porsche 935 uh, with a K3 Kramer body. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a replica, but it, was, it used the original Kramer molds, which okay. they managed to source. But underneath the skin, it was electric. And it's basically Tesla-based. Yep. So, uh, you know, Busy always tries to push the envelope and push I the I think boundary. you can certainly say that Busy and Hedy, you've got to give yes, Hedy credit as well, Hedy, because yes. Hedy has to push Busy. Yes, well, and, and keep him yeah, <laughs> focused. Yeah. Let's be honest. Busy, yeah. busy may drift, so Hedy's there to keep him focused. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I had great fun doing that. <clears throat> and then I've done uh, quite a few SEMA cars in the past, and that was one of the quickest I've done, because it was mainly livery. But I've done some styling projects as well. I did a so the other car that was there was um, I did a project for Bimmer World, which was.
BMW E36, which is for Pikes Peak, mm-hmm. and um, that's just that's just nuts. That car, like huge front splitter and fenders and all carbon bodywork and yep. you know underbody diffusers and stuff. So that was there as well, and that will be at um, Pikes Peak this year. So, uh, and then I had a couple of liveries there as well. So. See, it's, you're always so busy. Yeah, Andy. yeah, it's yeah. Like I say, the last couple of months is sort of right. Okay, I need to somehow scale this back. Yeah, so. and so <coughs> for someone obviously that uh, has not had the chance to email yet or reach out to you, what's the what are the tips that you'd give them if they're looking to get into this like this line of work or the design aspect? Uh, so if you want to get into the design side of things, <coughs> um, particularly with liveries, um, work on your two D work as well as three D. There are so many people, particularly on Twitter that do these nice 3D renderings yep, and not trying to be do too dismissive, but some of those could never be made mm-hmm. because you have to understand how a 2D graphic, like a sticker or a stripe, works on a 3D form. Um, and also you have to understand corporate identity. So there's no good having a pink Castrol logo because Castrol will never agree to it. Yep. Um, but the thing is to, uh, to get your 2D skills, your sketching skills, understand how 3d form works look what other people are doing not just graphics but also people like uh, uh john sabor and you know with all the instagram stuff you know how they're doing their bodywork styling and stuff yep and practice like the thing which got me underway was i started really early and all i did in the summer holidays was just draw cars yeah. literally draw cars every day yeah, I was such a nerd, <coughs> you know? Well, I mean, but look, I mean, I'm still waiting for John Sabell. He owes me design, and he's going to listen to this, <laughs> and he's going to be like, oh, yeah, I owe that guy something. No, he's as busy as I am. <laughs> no, John's never busy. He's never got no, anything no, on. No, he's never he's doing it. barely busy. I mean, yeah. you're Andy. Are you like really every, busy? every day I open Instagram, and he's like, he's got... He's like 15 he's more designs. He's got render up, and yeah. he's like, how does he do it? Because I, I need to get into 3D, mo- 3D renders and models for my um, livery work. Yep couple of reasons. One, to show people that can't imagine how a vehicle will look with a livery in 3D. Yes. But also, um, I sometimes use 3D uh, for press releases and also hero cards. Mm-hmm. So the first race of the season, a hero card will have to go to a print before the car's been built. Yep. And they need a hero card for the fans to collect and so yeah. get so the drivers to sign. Yeah. So I've used 3D renders before, but I have to outsource that. So I need to get onto that, as well as doing everything else. Yeah. And then I open up Instagram and, you know, uh, I see all these guys doing these amazing renders and I'm like, how do they do it? It's it's incredible. Where do they find the time? It's incredible. So with that being said, for people that haven't seen your work before, where's the best place for them to track you down online? Um, I do have a website, but it's quite out of date, um, which needs a desperate update. Uh, So that's andyblanmoredesign.com. Probably the best is my Instagram. Okay. Uh, which I think is Andy underscore Blackmore underscore design. But they should be able to track you down. Yeah, right? yeah. just I mean, type Andy Blackmore design. There, yeah. there is actually another Andy Blackmore that's a designer in the UK. But but he doesn't really he doesn't focus on much, design? Uh, on like, liveries, does, I should say. Have, yeah, he doesn't have much of a presence, luckily. Yeah, so he's not quite really in the motorsport livery game. Yeah, no. no. Um, and then Spotter Guides has its own website, which is spotterguides.com. Yep. And uh, I do all the guides for IMSA, including the support races. And I do quite a lot of stuff for Lamborghini. Yep. And uh, hopefully doing Le Mans this year and Mazda as well. And then hopefully you get a nice summer. Yes. Yeah. Nice bit of relaxing. Yep. But Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I, I can't thank you enough again for, for taking the time out to, to battle traffic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
to just to try and figure this all out and make it work. And I'm sure all the listeners, especially some in particular, are very much looking forward to this episode. So you've done them very, you've done, you've made my day and and them as well. So with that, guys, I always want to say thank you as always for listening. Please always feel free to leave a very positive review, at least at least 17 stars out of five. Uh, you should write to your specific hosts here for these podcasts and tell them they need to increase the scores just so you can score no breaking higher than it needs to be because it is the best. Um, if you've got questions, you could always reach out. Find us on Instagram at no breaking, Facebook at no breaking, or online at nobreaking.com. And until then, guys, we'll just see you next time. So thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.